Hello, people. Hello, everybody. Episode 125 of Ask Abhijit is live on the air. I hope you're doing very well. Today, we discuss uh, geopolitics, current affairs, history, etc. But before we do that, as always, let me see who all is there. I can see Bhaskar, Softwares, Creative, Hero, Manmat, Shashank, Asminor, Animish, PM, Goblet Fire, Harsh Zaveri, Aditya, Priyanka, Komal, Suraj, Sudita Rao, Crazy Brain, Ad- Adyansh, Tanishk, Abhishek, XTHRTH, The Akwan, Patel, Rudrik, Gaurav, Pavan, Durga, Munish, Manish, Prasad, Krish Gamer, R. Sagar, Herbie on Wheels, Amit, Purobinath, Slurpzi, Manoj, Aditi, Andre, Sagar, Lanchenba, Paulomi, Teja, Dipali, Kuldeep, Darshan, Tejas, Sayan, Bruh, The Soul Within, Trupti, R242, Sunita Rao again, and lots of other people, uh, the Rimjim, Proxima, Sneha, Amit, Adimish, and everybody else. Good evening, good day to all of you, wherever you are. All right, let us take some questions, shall we? As always, we have lots of questions. So today, let's start with a question about history instead of geopolitics for a change. Okay. Prabhanjan says, what was the very first war in the whole of the world that is recorded and documented in history? Where did it happen and between whom? Interesting question. Which was the very first war that has ever been recorded? Let us go to the map as always and see where this war happened. Where is our map? Here it is on the screen now. Here we are. Here's the map. And the very first war that is recorded happened in this region. Somewhere around here, in the Saptasindhu region, the first war that has ever been recorded in history, in literature, is the war, or rather the battle, so to say, of the Ten Kings, the Dash Rajna, Rajna Yuddha, that happened God knows when, a very, very long time ago. It is recorded in, I think, Mandal 7 of the Rig Veda. And there are several verses that uh, reference this this battle that happened okay so where did this battle this war or this battle happen it it happened on the banks of the parushni river the parushni river is now called the ravi river it's most likely the ravi river okay so who were the people that participated in this battle that's the question so on the one hand you had uh, sudas king sudas who was the grandson of uh, king divodas he wo- he belonged to the bharat clan of ancient India, right? So his people, they resided, they lived on the eastern bank of this river, the Parushni River, the Ravi River of, of, of today. So the, uh, the Ravi River mostly goes through Pakistan, present-day Pakistan temporarily, yes. And it passes through the city of Lahore, Lavapur, and it originates somewhere in the Himalayan foothills in, in the Himachal Pradesh region. So the Bharat clan of ancient India resided, they lived on the eastern bank of the Ravi River. And when this 
entire event happened their king was king sudas now what was happening is that on the western bank of the ravi river there were all these different uh, there were other clans that used to live beyond the the west right beyond the beyond the ravi river to the west so which were these clans they were the anus the parshu clan parshu or the parshwa clan who are the well the the ancestors of the persians then you had the pakta clan ancestors of the pakhtuns you had the prithu clan the ancestors of the parthians you had other clans like the alina the brigu clan and and many other clans all right so all of these people these people these clans that lived to the west of the ravi river they were they uh they used to raid on the eastern side they used to try and steal cattle from the bharat from the bharat clan and they had this very antagonistic relationship with the bharatas right so eventually this all came to a head and uh so king sudas the king of the bharat clan he had to fight a battle against an entire coalition of these western clans so these western clans the parshu the pakta the prithu the anus the alinas the brigus and so on and so forth they were also indians but they lived to the west of the ravi so the battle happened on the banks of the ravi river yeah the the parshuni river and the bharatas were able to prevail king sudas won the battle he won the war and all of these clans they had to run for their lives they essentially were exiled out of india they were expelled out of india uh, they used to come from the northwest they had to get out of uh, of the india and uh, go into central asia so some clans went into central asia which was uh, uttara madra yes and uh, some clans like the like the parshu clan the parshu clan they went westwards through balochistan and they eventually ended up in iran and they gave their name to iran the parshu clan gave the name they, then the country became persia it, it came to be called as persia right so sudas you can say king sudas he can be considered to be the first recorded war hero in history the first victorious king in any recorded war or battle king sudas and because it was the bharat clan that won this war this battle that's why india is called bharat today right so we are the descendants of the bharatas of the bharat clan uh, all of us whoever is watching if you are of indian origin you will have a certain percentage of your ancestry that comes from the bharata from from the bharata people who lived in india at that time that is a guarantee right so that is the first war that has ever been recorded it is re- recorded in the most ancient text that is known to humankind which is the rigveda the rigveda is the oldest literature in the history of humanity and in the rigveda we have the record of this very ancient battle or war so it is called the battle of the 10 kings but against so on the one hand you had the the bharatas uh, led by king sudas on the other hand on the other side you had a coalition a confederation of more than 10 clans it's called the battle of the 10 kings but there were more than 10 clans that were arrayed against king bharat so he faced great odds and he surmounted those odds he is the first victorious king that we know of in human history he is the first war hero that we know of in human history king 
Sudas, grandson of King Divodas. So that is in brief, a very brief overview of the Battle of the Ten Kings, the first war in recorded history. Rushi says, attempt number 782. See, <laughs> I see lots of people writing down what attempt it is, how many times they're trying to ask the question. Listen, if you're trying to guilt me into, into picking your questions, it's it's not really going to work. I pick questions that are interesting, that have not been asked before and that are relevant. So you can go on this question, even though there's an attempt listed over it, it's an interesting question. That's how I picked it. I have not picked it because it is attempt number four or attempt number whatever. I've picked it because it's interesting. So if you want me to pick your questions, please ask interesting questions, good questions that will be relevant to everybody, to all, to the entire audience, to a wider audience. Okay. With that said, the question is this. What does the deal of Haifa port mean for India? What is its strategic importance? And considering the fact that Gautam Adani, a private businessman, has bought the port, to what extent will the central government of India be able to interfere? All right. Where is Haifa? Haifa is the uh, largest port in Israel. So let us once again bring out the map. Here's the map. So where is Israel? Israel is on the eastern uh, banks of the Mediterranean Sea, south of Lebanon, west of Jordan, north of Misr, Egypt. So Haifa, so this is what Israel looks like. It's not a very large place and uh, there are certain interesting places in Israel. Let me just take a small detour before we go to Haifa. So there is this place called Beersheba, a very ancient place. Close to Beersheba, you have this town called Dimona. And near Dimona, you have an interesting um, interesting installation that you may be able to recognize what the shape looks like. You see this? So I'm not revealing any great secrets. It's all available in the public domain. But yeah, interesting places in Israel. Anyhow, let's go back to the port of Haifa. Where is it? It's further to the north of Yerushalayim, north of Tel Aviv. Here is Haifa port. So this is the port that we are discussing. Let's go to satellite imagery. Uh, it is Israel's largest port, the most significant port. And uh, it's a very, it's it's a nice natural harbor. It's got these breakwaters and uh, lots of terminals, etc. And there is an airport right next to it. I'm sure there's a train station, etc. All that nearby. A very well connected port. And uh, yeah. So this is the port that we are discussing. This is the port that has been acquired by the Adani group. Now, uh, it says over here, the question is that uh, Mr. Adani has bought the port. That is not quite the case. He has not bought the port. The port has been acquired on lease until the year 2050 something, 2054, 2055, right? And uh, the Adani group has acquired a 70% share in the port. And there's an Israeli... Uh, group, I think it is called the Gadot group, I believe, that has acquired the remaining 30%. So it's a it's a collaboration kind of thing. But uh, the Adani group has a controlling uh, stake in this uh, deal. It's on lease until the 2050s, right? So this is what the port is. And it's interesting that the, the this deal happened right after the uh, I2U2 summit between India the United States, Israel, and the UAE. So the US President, Mr. Biden, had gone to Israel. He had visited by Israel. And that's it. And while he was there, this uh, summit 
happened this discussion between the four leaders of these countries and right, almost right after this uh, this uh, i2u2 summit this deal was announced right so uh, so this is a private company the adani group is a private company and and what is the significance of this deal the significance of this deal is that it uh, brings india and israel closer together right india and israel already have a close relationship and it brings india and israel further closer together um this is not actually something that the americans are trying to engineer some people are saying that this is the beginnings of a of a middle eastern quad the i2u2 has been portrayed as a middle eastern quad and maybe they are saying that this is part of it and it's becoming a strategic thing uh, it may not quite be the same i don't think this has been engineered by the the americans but here's the deal see the uh, the adani group is already connected it's already participating in uh, the defense sector uh, uh, with israeli different defense firms it is in the process of setting up a drone manufacturing company in india it's in the process of doing it or maybe it has already done it and it is doing it in collaboration it part in partnership with israeli defense firms so now that uh, the adani group is uh, involved in this matter as well it uh, it makes the relationship stronger and uh, it will offer israeli companies a, a better foothold into india because this partnership is now stronger and it is more like a strategic partnership right um, the other thing is that the the india has a very good relationship with the various gcc states the gulf cooperation council states and israel has a good relationship between with the uae and with bahrain so this will help israel get get closer and have better relations with the gcc states so that is something that uh, will benefit israel and this is obviously of course uh, an alternative to the chinese uh, maritime silk road so the so, so the chinese are trying to create this maritime silk road and they want to control the uh, the trading routes the the infrastructure and all that yeah the supply chains and all that so this is going to be a viable alternative to that it will offer india a foothold in the mediterranean it will offer india a way to get into uh, the middle east and further west into the mediterranean region into into europe and all that yeah so we are seeing this uh, new thing happening it's an alternative to what the chinese are doing and even what the chinese are doing with iran and russia the international north south transit corridor which they are trying to set up yeah so we are seeing the emergence of a parallel infrastructure now and this is a major step in that direction the chinese there is a chinese company that also has a that also uh, operates a terminal somewhere in haifa not in this port but nearby so the chinese will not be happy about this i believe the chinese were trying to uh, acquire uh, what the adani group has acquired they were trying to acquire a uh, lease a long term lease on the haifa port but obviously that would not work out because the americans would not be happy and maybe the israelis don't also want to get too close to china if there is a chinese presence it's always problematic there's various angles to it geopolitical angles spying angle and all that right so what we are seeing is that this is this is something that is purely between india and israel i do not think personally that the americans have any hand in engineering this so we are witnessing parallel supply chains parallel transit uh, trade corridors etc being created uh, an india arab mediterranean trade corridor kind of thing uh, via israel and the uae may most likely be involved in this and other nations 
of the GCC club may also get involved. So we are witnessing multipolarity. The Americans want bipolarity. The Chinese want unipolarity. It's nations like India, Israel, France, even Russia, which is not part of this, but these nations want multipolarity. And this is what we are witnessing. So we are witnessing right now the beginning of this sort of cooperation. Uh, bilateral cooperation between India and Israel, trilateral, trilateral cooperation between India, Israel, UAE. Most likely the UAE will also be part of this supply, this, this corridor, trade corridor. And uh, so that's what's happening. We are seeing or a changing of the geopolitical balance. For the longest time, India was not involved anywhere. Now the question is that Adani Group is a private company. Yes. So will the government of India be able to interfere? There is no question of interference. See, today a lot of geopolitics is played by private companies. And obviously when you have a private company of a certain nation that gets involved in something like this, that nation is automatically involved. And... Uh, so that's how it is. So the private companies often act as proxies of the government in a variety of ways. And we know that the Gautam Adani group is very close. Well, that's what the media says. It's very close to the government of India, the current uh, government of India. So that is something that works in India's favor, right? And Mr. Adani, I think he had made, he had said this, that this is not, it's not about the money. It's a, it's a strategic move that the Adani group is making. And so this is a win-win for the Adanis. It is a win-win for India, Israel, even the UAE. So it is a positive step uh, altogether, looking at it from all, all, all possible angles. And this is going to uh, definitely lead to a strengthening of the India-Israel relationship, cooperation, the strategic relationship. And we could see more such things happening in the future. You will have more Israeli investment in India. You will have more collaboration between India, Indian companies and Israeli companies. From in the defense sector, in other sectors as well, trade sector, etc. It's good. So overall, that's what's happening. Uh, it's it's a thirty plus year lease. I think it's until nine. It's until twenty fifty five or twenty fifty four. So it's a long term uh, game that is being played here, and it's it's good for India as well as as well as Israel. Next. Tech Curiosity says, please tell us about the U.S. military's project. 100,000, or McNamara's morons in the Vietnam War. So the Vietnam War is a conflict that started in the 1950s. It went on until the, until the 1970s. The Americans eventually finally withdrew from Vietnam in, if I'm not mistaken, 1973. Somewhere around there. You can refer the dates and find the exact dates. And they got involved militarily with troops on the ground, with boots on the ground properly in the 1960s. Was it 62? Was it 63? Look it up if you're interested, right? So, so then this war uh, began in, in earnest. There were lots of American troops that were needed on Vietnamese soil in order to uh, defeat the communists that were supported by various uh, other nations. Yeah. So what the Americans uh, had to face is they had to start a recruitment drive. They had to draft people they had to ask for people to voluntarily join the armed forces. And there was opposition. There was resistance to this. It was the 1960s. People were into, into flower power. People were into the hippie lifestyle. People were into love and peace and all that. And they did not like this uh, 
this project that the Americans, uh, the American government had started of interfering in, in a foreign nation. It was all started by the very pacifistic uh, President, uh, Mr. Kennedy. Right? It's, it's uh, surprising that... Uh, well, it's not really surprising, but that's how it works. So it all began with uh, with President Kennedy's, uh, Kennedy's actions. And then he was assassinated, obviously, 63, I believe. And uh, Lyndon Johnson became the president. He was vice president. Then because Kennedy was assassinated, Lyndon Johnson became the president. And Robert McNamara was the defense secretary of the US. He served under President Kennedy and then under President Johnson. So around this time, there was a great need for U.S. soldiers to, 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 to pull American civilians into the military. And obviously, when you enter the military, there are certain tests that you have to go through. There is a certain aptitude test, a mental aptitude test, a fitness test. Do you, do you, uh, are you good enough to be in the army, right? You'll be tested. So uh, this Project 100,000 was an experiment of sorts. In this project, in this experiment, they lowered the standards of, of the intake, right? So there would be a mental test, uh, an intelligence test or something like that, right? Mental aptitude test. So uh, they lowered the standards for that. And even for the physical uh, requirements, they lowered the standards. So what happened is that a bunch of people, more than 200,000, more than 2 lakhs, about 230 or 250, thousand soldiers were were uh, part of this experiment and they did not really fulfill the standards that the american army had many of them could not many of them were illiterate many of them could not speak english some of them were overweight some of them were underweight and there was a control group of of regular people who could actually uh, pass the pass the tests and, and fulfill the requirements so about 230,000 or 250,000 such soldiers were drafted into the army and they were called McNamara's misfits or McNamara's morons and some other, other terms were also used. And they, the American army and the, and the bureaucracy, they kept track of the performance of these people, right? And what was discovered is that the performance was bad. They were way more likely to get killed in combat. They were way more likely to get arrested by their own military police for various infractions and transgressions, etc. Uh, so they did very poorly. Yeah, that was not a very, very successful experiment. At that time, uh, what was also happening was that uh, there was this, uh, the the war against poverty or something that Lyndon Johnson was, was uh, it was a new campaign he had started, a political thing, right, back home. Uh, war against poverty or fight against poverty or something. And Robert McNamara tried to, construe or interpret or portray this experiment as part of the war against poverty. So essentially, he was saying that we are trying to use the American armed forces as an employment generation scheme by lowering the standards slightly. It was more than slightly. So these people who were part of the, this experiment, they did poorly in the armed forces. They were way more likely to get killed percentage-wise then the normal soldiers, they were way more likely to get arrested and have other problems. After they were discharged, after the war was over, uh, 
their unemployment rates were much higher their alcoholism rates were much higher their divorce rates were much higher so even after they were released back into the civilian population they fared very poorly or uh, they were much more susceptible to ptsd post traumatic stress disorder because they did not have the mental aptitude to to withstand battle and you know to deal with it the way a regular soldier would yeah so the americans did this strange experiment they they lowered the standards of their military for this and the results were not good the results were were quite bad so that is what this thing is and if you watch the movie forest forest gump it's about a soul an american citizen who is not very bright yeah and he is drafted into the army and he serves in the vietnam war uh it doesn't explicitly state that he was part of the mcnamara's morons experiment but there is no other way that a person like forest gump with uh, less than average less than standard uh, iq and intelligence and aptitude in anything would have been part of the army and would have been drafted into the army and uh, would have been allowed to take part part in the vietnam war so uh, this is a failed experiment they tried to use the military the american military as an employment generation scheme please understand my dear friends the military is not an employment generation scheme the military does not exist to give you employment the military let's talk about the indian military there's a movie right now that's a complete copy of forest gump in which they they portray a person who seems to be borderline retarded that's how he has been acted right that's how the portrayal is and that person is in the indian army the indian army has high standards the indian army has very high standards fitness standards mental aptitude standards and all that so the portrayal is terrible the indian army would never ever allow this sort of experiment to happen in india and also remember that the armed forces are not an employment generation scheme since we are talking about this let me let me let me let me reiterate that the armed forces do not exist to give you all employment the armed forces have only one purpose to deal with national security right so so that's what it is about so they the americans tried to do this experiment in which they used the armed forces as an employment generation scheme part of the uh, part of the us president's war against poverty and it misfired very badly and those people they had very bad lives afterwards even after they were discharged so that in brief is about the american uh, military's project 100000 also known as mcnamara's misfits or mcnamara's morons that's what they called it okay a couple of questions mayank says hello sir what if india too were to frame a one india policy will our so called strategic alliance allied partners accept it and dev says jahin sir jahin dev uh when will india's foreign policy be aggressive and follow chanakya niti for china and when will the government of india support the independence of tibet and take back take back pakistan occupied jammu and kashmir and aksai chin okay think about it this way let's say i have a pet pet cat so my pet cat decides that from tomorrow i am going to behave like a tiger yeah my my policy i'm going to change my policies from tomorrow morning onwards and i'm going to have the same policy that the tiger has will my pet pet cat be able to overnight become a tiger and be feared and be 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 just like a tiger i don't think so right let's say i have a dog and my dog decides that from tomorrow morning i will adopt the policies that a bear has 
will that dog get the same results let's say i have a goldfish in in a bowl and my goldfish says tomorrow morning onwards i'm going to behave like a shark will that goldfish get the same results so what i am trying to say is that you may change your policies but your policies must re- reflect your actual capabilities they must reflect the ground realities they cannot be part of some imaginary universe that you may think you live in right so when when we are saying that let's frame a one india policy so the chinese have a one china policy and most nations abide by it today india i think today india said that we don't explicitly abide by the one china policy which is a good statement but china has this policy it's able to enforce it mostly because other nations fear china with good reason the chinese are a very massive economy and they have a very massive military so other nations have reason to fear the chinese and nations that are far away wish to benefit from chinese from china's economic cooperation that's why they abide by the one china policy the americans are not doing that now if if india were to claim that we have a one india policy we would like that to happen but are we powerful enough for that to be enforced for us to be able to enforce that right now we are not that powerful please understand that right now when we talk about uh, supporting the independence of tibet and uh, taking back pok and accession it has to be within the realms of india's capabilities today today india is not in a position to initiate a war with the chinese and and grab territory and grab back the territory that they have stolen from us as of today there is an asymmetry of power the chinese if they start a war with india they will be they will they will regret it because there are certain lines that in india will not allow the chinese to cross we have those capabilities but we do not have the capabilities of today to go and take back tibet or or to or to liberate tibet we don't have that as of today right so we can try and be aggressive with our words and all but what point does it does it serve right so chanakyaniti is not about being aggressive chanakyaniti is about being patient and 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 doing what is the right thing for the long term benefit chanakyaniti is not about being angry and being aggressive and all that chanakyaniti is all kinds of things it's also about pretending to be weak in biding your time so please understand what chanakyaniti actually is please actually read the book if you can right so india will frame will india will declare a one india policy when it is strong enough to have it enforced by everybody else as of today if we say we have a one india policy then the chinese will explicitly go and do something about it they have been issued in the past they issued visas with with the, with the wrong map the and 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 the pakistanis they hold over territory so do the, so the chinese only when we regain the territories in due time can we enforce such a policy so it's about patience india is not there yet please understand this we are not there yet we have to be realistic look around see the actual situation of the world we cannot it's it's like a cat saying i'm from tomorrow i'm a tiger that's not how it works i'm not trying to compare india with a cat i'm just giving an analogy right india is a great nation but we are still not powerful enough we will be in the future the time will come be patient and work towards that all of us need to work towards that in our own individual ways chanakyaniti may already be 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 in in progress and it's not supposed to be visible to everybody 
right? So that's how it is. Okay, another similar question. Uh, Titan says, "When no, why do our successive? Why are our successive governments silent when it comes to tackling China at the border? Our leaders and media generally don't comment on Chinese action on the border, be it intrusion, constructions of structures, and land occupation." Um, so the question is, why is our government silent? So the alternative is not being silent and making statements. And what what goes good does that serve? Making strong statements. You know what they call it in Hindi? Kadilinda. Kadilinda, right? It means a strong, harsh condemnation with strong words. What does it do? Words are words. Words are immaterial. How many times do you have to keep repeating this? Actions matter. And you don't publicize your actions ever. You keep it quiet. There are all these various very prominent individuals that, that I'm not naming anybody, but there are lots of these very prominent people, some of them who say that, who, who have the same criticism, that the government is weak need, it doesn't make any strong uh, statements and all. Statements do nothing. Words are just words. It's actions that matter. Right? So we don't know what's happening. The media will portray all kinds of things. They don't really they don't really have access to the border regions. We have satellite imagery, we have OSINT uh, and all that. So we have some idea of what's happening. And uh, it's being construed and spun in various ways and all that. See, it's very simple. You should be quiet. Your actions should speak larger, louder than your words. Making strong statements and condemning uh, what the Chinese are doing or may not be doing or whatever, it what difference does it make on the real world? It's like, you know, you have two boxers who have, who have a fight in a week's time and one of them is very aggressive and makes huge statements and I'm going to beat him up, I'm going to knock him out in the first round, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. And when the fight happens, you know what happens. So there's no point being aggressive verbally and, and uh, not being silent. Silence or the lack of it is immaterial. Only actions matter. Right? And the actions will be taken or may already be, be in progress. We may not know about it. It all depends on our capabilities. It all depends on how strong we are as a nation overall. What is our comprehensive national power like? That's a measure of your overall strength. It, it, it uh, takes into account your GDP, the, what kind of uh, materials you are producing, how much of what your export-import uh, balance is like, uh, what sort of military you do you have, what sort of diplomatic relations you have, and a variety of factors. Your comprehensive national power, that is what determines how strong you are and how you can tackle other nations. Words are immaterial. Words are pointless. I don't look listen to people's words. I keep saying this. If you want to truly understand what a leader is like, ignore his or her words completely. Only see their actions. Look at their track record over, over the past 10, 20, 30 years. That is what will tell you what the real value is, what the real worth is. Okay? So words don't matter. People can speak a lot. But that, that is pointless. All right. Shrihari Arjun says, China has docked its spy vessel in Sri Lanka and India did not take any action. Why did India face this diplomatic diplomatic dis defeat despite giving aid to Sri Lanka and being much closer to it than China in terms of distance? 
Uh, I'm not sure if the vessel has docked there yet, but it. I think the Sri Lankans have now uh, given the Chinese vessel permission to dock from the 16th to the to the 21st or 22nd of this month, uh, August 2022. So yes, that is something that is, uh, well, it goes against India's interest, against India's national interest. And that is something that the Sri Lankans need to uh, face some consequences for. I'm not talking about the Sri Lankan public. I'm not talking about the people of Sri Lanka. We have absolutely nothing against the people of Sri Lanka. They are, they are our own people. Yeah, The Sri Lankan government, which is in power right now, which has come to power recently after the hasty exit of the Rajapaksa dynasty. So this new government under Mr. Ranil Vikramasinghe, who is a Western stooge, yeah, this government has allowed, has given permission to China to to uh, to, to to allow this vessel to dock in Hambantota port. So this obviously is, you. I think we can constru- we can consider this to be a hostile action against India. Yeah. So there, why did we face this diplomatic defeat? Because the Sri Lankans are not scared enough of India as of today. It's very simple. Diplomacy is war. By other means, understand this. Diplomacy is not nice words and and nice meetings and all that. Diplomacy is about holding a club, a stick behind your back and talking nice. That is what diplomacy is. And how effective your diplomacy is depends solely on how big the stick is that you're holding behind your back. So the Sri Lankans have done this because they are not scared enough of India. They are pretty certain Mr. Vikramasinghe and his minions, whoever it is, they are pretty certain that they are quite safe and they will face no real-world consequences for this behavior from India. That is why they have done this. Is this a diplomatic defeat for us, for India? No, it's not a diplomatic defeat for India. It is a reflection of India's standing in the global power scenario. China is more powerful than India. It is a simple reflection of that. The day India becomes more powerful than China, the Sri Lankans will not dare to do this. So please understand what diplomacy actually is. Diplomacy is war by other means and the effectiveness of your diplomacy depends on the size of your stick and how many sticks you have. Yeah. So this is what's what's going on. This is simply a reflection of ground realities. So if for, uh, for India to not face the sort of situation in the future, India has to grow economically and militarily. It's not going to happen next week. It's going to take 10 years minimum. So what I would suggest is get to work, all of you. Contribute in every single way you can. If you don't like what's happening, you don't like what's happening, stop wasting time. Get to work and contribute to building yourself up and through that building the nation up. That's all it is. Okay, next question is by Saurabh. What was the history of the great ruler Pushyamitra Shunga? Some people claim that he destroyed Buddhism in India. Even uh, Romila Thapa did not support their claim. The, the, the claim that Pushyamitra Shunga destroyed uh, Buddhist stupas, etc. All right, all right, all right. Who was Pushyamitra Shunga? He started a new dynasty after the downfall of the Mauryan dynasty, the Mauryan Empire. So Pushyamitra Shunga was the general, the commander-in-chief of the last Mauryan king, Brihadratta Maurya. Right? 
So Brihadratta Maurya was not a very good, very able, very powerful king. He was no longer emperor. He was no longer Maharaja Dhiraj. He was simply Maharaj of Magad more or less. Yeah, His empire was crumbling. He was not able to uh, control it very well. He was not able to exercise power very well. And the nation was suffering. The Indian subcontinent, which was unified under uh, Emperor Chandragupta, under Emperor Ashok, etc., was crumbling. There was a lack of political unity. Everybody was being... Uh, Various other members of the Maurya dynasty were being opportunistic and setting up their own kingdoms, one in Gandhar, present-day Afghanistan, one somewhere else, one in Kashmir, and so on. Yeah, so that was what was happening. So this guy, the last king of the Mauryas, Brihadratra, was not a capable king. He was not worthy of being a king. His general, his senapati, commander-in-chief, was Pushyamitra Shunga. So what Pushyamitra did was, during a military parade, in which he was demonstrating how powerful the army is, etc., to his king. During this military parade, he assassinated with his own hands the king. And then he became the king. But he never called himself Maharaj. He always called himself Senapati. So Pushyamitra Shunga ruled for about 30-35 years. I think 35 years. In the 2nd century BCE, between 180 and 150 or so BC. Okay? Now, he had to establish his legitimacy that he, I am the right kind of guy to rule the nation. And what he did was he again consolidated the empire, the nation, right? So he was able to expand his kingdom and wage certain military campaigns. And he brought back some of the old glory that had been lost over time because of the, uh, because of the slow decline of the Mauryan dynasty. Now, he had different policies than what the Mauryans had. For instance, Ashok is the guy, Ashok is the emperor who brought Buddhism out of obscurity. It was just an obscure little sect and he he catapulted Buddhism to global superpower status. That's what Ashok Maurya did. Uh, then you had a king called Samprati who was the last great Mauryan emperor. He was the grandson of Ashok. He was the son of Ashok's blind son Kunal. So Samprati, he was a great patron of Jainism. It is said that he built more than 150,000 Jain temples uh, all across the empire. Uh, then again, various other kings came in, uh, other descendants, and they, I believe, went back to patronizing Buddhism. Now, when Pushyamitra Shunga became the em- emperor of India, I believe he stopped patronizing Buddhism. So whatever privileges Buddhism was getting under the previous Mauryan kings all ended, all disappeared. But there is zero evidence whatsoever that there was actual persecution of Buddhism. Right. So there is there are some Buddhist texts, one of which is called the Ashokavadana, I believe, in which it is said that Pushyamitra was evil and he, he persecuted the Buddhists and the, the, things like that. That's what this Buddhist text claims. But on the other hand, you have a Sri Lankan Buddhist text called the Mahavansha, which mentions, which records that there were various Buddhist monasteries present and flourishing in Magadh itself during the time that Pushyamitra was the king. So the Sri Lankan uh, records tell us a very different story than what is portrayed in the Mahavansha. So this looks like something that uh, 
the various Buddhist leaders of the time were not happy that they lost the great privileges that they had otherwise before Pushyamitra Shunga came to power. And that's why they have portrayed him as, as a cruel guy and as somebody who uh, not destroyed but persecuted Buddhism. We know that during the, the Shunga dynasty, Buddhism was alive and well. It was doing well. Right? I think the, the uh, Ashoka Vadana says that uh, Pushyamitra killed some some uh, Buddhist monks and priests and all that. It is even claimed that he went to uh, Shagala, which is present-day Sialkot in, uh, temporarily in Pakistan. He went there and he offered a bounty of 100 Roman dinaris for the head of every Buddhist monk that was killed or something like that. The, the, the funny thing is that at that time, the Roman dinaris were not even pre- prevalent in India. Yeah. The, the Ashoka Avadana was written much later. So that's the kind of thing it is. It looks like a battle of narratives, a battle. It, it looks like propaganda to make this guy look bad because he did not support Buddhism to the extent that they wanted. And that's how it is. So there is no actual evidence whatsoever. There is zero evidence, zero, that Pushyamitra Shunga persecuted Buddhism and tried to whatever, destroy Buddhism or whatever, right? There is no evidence for this whatsoever. Lakshya says, you've said that Chinggis Khan was the greatest emperor of all time. Mm, have I? Uh, however, I think that Samrat Vikramaditya the Great was far superior since he is described as an incredibly fair and just king who never did anyone harm. His rule is described as a golden era that ushered in, in unprecedented levels of peace and prosperity. Uh, what do you think? Okay. So let's talk about Emperor Vikramaditya. We have an entire era named after Emperor Vikramaditya, which is the Vikram Samvat era. Um, So how do we compare, let's say, Vikramaditya with, let's say, Ashok? When it comes to Ashok, there are mentions of Ashok in various records, historical records. The Sri Lankan records uh, extensively mention Ashok. They mention his children, Sangamitra and Mahinda, who came to Sri Lanka to propagate uh, Buddhism and brought the brought uh, a sapling of the Bodhi tree with them. Yeah, Sangamitra, Sangamitra brought that and so on. We also know that Ashok had a vast empire because of the various pillars and edicts he placed at the boundaries of his empire. We know that it encompassed present-day Afghanistan, Gandhar and uh, Balochistan, etc., Western Punjab and the other extent in the east as well. And we know how far it, it extended to, to, the, to the south as well. And there are inscriptions of Ashok which mention him as Priyadarshi, Piyadasi, and so on. So there is copious, abundant evidence that Ashok was the emperor of India. And we know reasonably when, well when he was the emperor of India. When it comes to Vikramaditya, there is a lack of evidence. There are no inscriptions that that are unmistakably referring to Emperor Vikramaditya. There are no other texts that we know of from other places. Maybe Sri Lanka, maybe from from Rome, maybe from Greece, maybe from from, uh, Tibet or whatever that mentioned that there was a king called Vikramaditya in India. There is a lack of evidence. There is not one piece of evidence that you can consider to be unmistakable, undeniable, incontrovertible. Now, please understand, I've said this before, let me say this again. The absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. 
I am pretty sure that Emperor Vikramaditya was a real person. He really existed. Uh, India's historians, you know, uh, post-independence historians, they say that he is a mythical king. I don't agree with that. I am quite sure that he existed. But I have no evidence that he actually existed. And I have no evidence of how large or small his empire would have been. And therefore, I cannot pass any kind of judgment on him. When I say that the Mahabharat actually happened, it's because we have evidence that it actually happened. Events that are described in the Mahabharat are now known to be true. The sinking of Dwarka because of a tectonic event. We know it happened. The, the city is there. We found it. We discovered it under the ocean. Yes, of the coast of present-day the Dwarka. So we know that exactly what is written in the Mahabharata, exactly that, that same thing has happened. And that's why we can say with great confidence that this event, the event of the Mahabharata, most likely, not most likely, they 100% happened. Similarly with the Ramayana, with the Ram Setu thing and all that, that is still a work in progress, but we are reasonably sure that the Ramayana also has historical basis, right? Now when it comes to Emperor Vikramaditya, I am pretty certain that he existed and maybe he was a great great emperor but we have no actual evidence of that and therefore I cannot pass any judgment that he was greater than this or greater than that. It's like that. It's simple logic. This is the scientific method. This is how you examine things and, and analyze things based on evidence only not based on feelings or emotions or, or stories. Yeah. So I'm not sure what I've said about Genghis Khan. Did I say he was the greatest emperor? I said I must have certainly said that he was the greatest conqueror that we know of in recorded history. Um, so yeah, I, I, I don't have any basis for comparing Chinggis Khan with the uh, emperor Vikramaditya. Some people say that his empire was all over Asia. Arabia was also part of that. Okay. You make the claim, but can you please substantiate that claim with some actual evidence? I am yet to see any piece of evidence. I'm not saying that because there is no evidence today, it means it never happened. We may discover evidence in the future. Our archaeologists and historians have been sleeping the past 70, 80 years. So once they wake up and start doing work, we, we may uncover evidence of the fact that Vikramaditya really ruled in India. But thus far, we have none of that. Some people even said that he defeated uh, Julius Caesar and all that. From where do these stories come from? Please, if you make a claim, show me the evidence that corroborates your claim. That's just as simple as it is. And therefore, I have to regrettably say that I have no basis for comparing Emperor Vikramaditya with Chinggis Khan. And therefore, I cannot make any value judgment. Yeah. So I don't know what the stories say. I don't go by stories. I, I've heard the stories, but I need evidence for me to actually say that this actually happened. I am hopeful that we will discover the evidence. I am pretty certain that uh, Emperor Vikramaditya did exist and that he was a great king. We don't know how great he was. Only when we find evidence of the extent of his empire will we know how great he actually was. That's all I can say about this. Mazar says, uh, thank you, sir. Why is it that Bhagat Singh is highly revered in Indian discourse, but we never heard hear about Hemu Kalani, who was hanged by the British, by the Brits at the young age of 19? Yeah, there are so many Indian freedom fighters who have also done the supreme sacrifice. They have sacrificed their lives. They sacrificed their lives for the nation and no one remembers them. And some people get the privilege of being worshipped everywhere. I am not saying that we should not uh, revere Bhagat Singh for what he did. He was a young man with a whole life in front of him and he gave it up 
willingly with a smile for the for the sake of the nation yes so we obviously um must treasure the memory of bhagat singh it doesn't mean that we should ignore everybody else there are other people who did the same thing who gave up their lives so hemu khalani is somebody who lived in sindh um and uh, he participated in the quit india movement that mr gandhi had uh, started so if my memory serves me right the quit india movement began in 1942 it was a complete failure yeah but so uh, hemu kalani participated in that and he had different ideas from the, what mr gandhi was preaching what he did is i think in the town of in the city of sakkar in sindh there was this railway track and he and some of his friends or companions tried to uh, tried to derail a train by sabotaging the railway track right by by pulling out some rails or something like that and they were caught and the british were able to prevent the derailment from happening so i'm not sure if all of them were caught but hemu kalani was caught he was apprehended he was imprisoned then he was tortured they wanted him to reveal the names of his fellow conspirators so to say the people who had uh, who had collaborated with him in this project of derailing a train and he refused to give up their names and for that the british hanged him this is completely arbitrary application of justice the guy tried to do something that they did not like but he did not succeed and i'm sure there were written rules there was a whole penal code that the british had started in the 18 in the 1800s the indian penal code came into force was it 1830 or 1860 somewhere around there right so nearly 100 years before this thing happened 1943 this happened and i'm sure that there was no death penalty prescribed for attempting to do something like this anyhow this was completely arbitrary application of justice and law and because uh, because uh, because hemu refused to divulge the names of the people who collaborated with him because of that the british hanged him i think in 1943 so he gave up his life i think at the age of like you say 19 i think yeah for the sake of the nation and no i think i mean almost no one no remembers him so that's my point there are so many freedom fighters beyond bhagat singh chandrashekar azad and rajguru and various other people that we remember there are way more people there are there are hundreds of thousands of indians who would to give up their lives for the sake of their freedom of their people's freedom of their nation's freedom it's 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 a shame it's a tragedy that we don't remember the names there should be a memorial somewhere where all the information all the names that we have in our records should be kept on display so that people can at least go and see the names and and you know at least at least see the name that this was a person who gave up his or her life for us right so that's how it is india unfortunately as of today does not really uh does not honor those the the, the true patriots and it's sad it's unfortunate and i'm i'm sure that uh, even pakistan would not be honoring or remembering hemu kalani because of his religion sindh is now in pakistan right currently so yeah it's, that's just how it is unfortunate eddie corleone says i wonder why all the earth reports on china and taiwan by the us australia and japan reporters never mentioned the 1972 agreement 
recognized by the US and China. And what it says is the US recognizes the government of the People's Republic of China as the sole legal government of China. There is but one China and Taiwan is a part of China. I get that the agreement is not in our favor now, but doesn't that, that doesn't mean it doesn't exist or we can just ignore it. That is the, at the very heart of the conflict with China. So uh, you seem to be uh, arguing on behalf of China or in, or in favor of China, that uh, the US and the West has reneged on its commitment on the agreement that it, it had signed. This was called the 1972 Shanghai Communique, I think. Yeah. In which the Americans said that, yeah, we recognize the one China policy and China is one nation and, and Taiwan is part of China and all that. This was in 1972 during the US-China thaw, during the Kissinger new uh, Nixon era, when Nixon was president. Yeah. And uh, yes, so the Shanghai communique did say something to this effect. And what Mr. Ed de Corleone is saying that why is America not honoring this commitment? Yeah. I mean, uh, the agreement may not be in someone's favor, but it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Uh, the U.S. should still honor this commitment on this agreement, this communique that it, it uh, put out in 1972, and it should recognize Taiwan as part of China. Okay. The, th the thing is this. No nation is bound, duty-bound, to abide by a treaty that is not in its interest. No nation is, is duty-bound to do that. If, let's say, in the, in the past you signed a treaty and today you realize that it's not in, in your favor, it is, it is harmful, it is detrimental to your national interest, then it is perfectly right for that nation to walk away from the treaty. Whether it signed it or not doesn't matter. Shall I give you some examples? Have you heard of the JCPOA? the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the Iran nuclear deal that the Americans signed in 2015. It became effective in 2015. Yes, the Americans signed the agreement. What happened? 2018, they withdrew, withdrew from the agreement. They walked away from it, from a signed agreement. It's happened. Have you heard of the Sino-British Joint Declaration? 1984, was it? The Sino-British Joint Declaration. So, uh, Hong Kong was supposed to come back to China in 1997, was it? Somewhere around there. So the Chinese and the British signed this joint declaration in 1984, I remember. It was supposed to be effective for 50 years. And it enshrined the principles of the, of the uh, one country, two systems. That principle. So Hong Kong will go back to China but it will be one country, two systems. Hong Kong will have a separate system. It will be a self-governing autonomous region of sorts with a high degree of, of autonomy, except for defense and foreign affairs. Right? The Chinese were, they, they, they signed this, this joint declaration. They agreed to it. But then what happened in 2020, in 2021, they went back on it. And even before that, in 2014 or 2015, the Chinese said that this agreement, this, this thing no longer applies. So the Chinese went back on the treaty that they had. They said unilaterally, this no longer applies. So that's how it is. That's always how it is. So you, you can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't run with the hare and hunt with the hounds. You, you are, you are uh, arguing on, in favor of China, but you are ignoring what the Chinese themselves have been doing. The Chinese can never be trusted to keep any agreement. Never, ever, ever, ever. 
look at their past history of the past 60 70 years see the things they have done so please don't give me this argument in favor of china that the americans should abide by a signed agreement or a communication the 72 shanghai communique every nation has the right to walk away from a treaty that is detrimental to its national interest that's just how it goes treaty or no treaty doesn't matter okay abdul basit says what do you think about the indian air force still running still flying the aging mig 21s and the hindustan aeronautics limited hal facing difficulties in in the production rate of the tejas um i think it is it is deeply deeply unfortunate that uh, the indian air force is still operating the mig 21s the mig 21s belong in museums that plane that, that fighter plane was the state of the art most advanced fighter plane i believe in the 1950s or 1960s yeah and it's it's totally obsolete but the indian air force is still flying it and i don't blame the indian air force for this it is the various governments in india that have totally delayed the procurement of of new fighter planes uh, there was this uh, about 20 or so years ago india was supposed to acquire 114 fighter planes and we are still waiting for that to happen the, for some reason the defense procurement process is incredibly slow yeah and that's why we are still flying these ancient museum piece aircraft it is it is really really unfortunate in the future the jaguar fighter planes will also become will have to be phased out i think the mig 21s will be phased out i believe by 2025 26 somewhere around there and by 2030 or thereabouts even the jaguars and possibly even the mirages could be phased out because they are also going to be going to be like you know long in the tooth so the solution right now is to really ramp up the production rate of the tejas uh, and to really get going on the development of the amca the advanced medium combat aircraft and whatever else is coming maybe the twin engine deck deck based fighter and various other things that are that are in in progress and possibly acquire more fighter planes from abroad as a stopgap solution maybe get 36 more rafales maybe 100 more rafales whatever you know in the late 90s mid 90s late 90s the french actually offered the indian government of that time they made this offer to india they offered india they offered to move the factory that makes mirage 2000 aircraft to india and they said that india can build as many of the aircraft as it likes and the indian government did not take up this offer india would have been the manufacturing hub the manufacturing base of the mirage 2000 fighter fighter plane the mirage 2000 fighter plane is one of the aircraft that that participated in the balakot strike across the border into into pakistani occupied terrorist uh, uh, territory right it's a great aircraft india could have had the manufacturing capability for the mirage 2000 and india could have manufactured 100 200 300 for its own, for its own purpose for its own sake the indian government of that time whoever it was in power at the time they did not make this happen and now we are in this situation so i think for the time being it makes sense for india to acquire maybe 100 or so foreign aircraft and it doesn't make sense to acquire a new make of aircraft maybe the f16 f15 or whatever else people may be talking about 
India should acquire an aircraft that it already has. The Rafale makes sense. So acquire 36 more, maybe 100 more, 114 more, whatever, do that. In the meanwhile, India needs to ramp up the production rate of the Tejas. I don't know how many Tejas fighter planes are being built per year right now. Is it 16 per year? Uh, We could set up another assembly line which produces 16 more per year. I don't think that's a very big problem. You just have to sign something and uh, issue the budget for it. So uh, that is something that can be solved reasonably quickly in a couple of years. Yeah. And then we could be producing double the number of Tejas aircraft per year. So, yeah, that is something that needs to be done. So, I think it is really unfortunate that we are still flying these ancient museum pieces. It is the fault of various successive governments over the past 20 or so years. They have uh, allowed this problem to fester and it's becoming like really bad now. Yeah. So, yeah, that's that's what I can say. We need to have a quick stopgap solution. Uh how many squadrons do does India need to have? Fighter, fighter plane squadrons? 43, is it? I think right now India has about 30 fighter plane squadrons, out of which many, many of those are that of the MiG-21s. So there needs there is an urgent need for India to acquire new fighter planes, and I hope that something will be done soon about this. Okay, Samad says... Will India import bombers, strategic bombers from Russia? Will the US take a risk and sanction India if this happens? Is India economically ready for such kinds of sanctions? So I'm hearing these days, in the past week or so, this this report, this rumor that India is going to acquire on lease, I think, six Tupolev 160 strategic bombers from Russia. I'm not sure how true this is. I'm not sure if the army or the air force has made the statement. It looks like some high-ranking person made made some remarks about this while delivering a speech. But I'm not sure if this has been confirmed or whether it's just a rumor. I am going to consider this to be a rumor as of now. But let's say, so, so I'm not sure if it's really going to happen. If it's really happening, then my question is, don't we have a much bigger need of investing that sort of money into acquiring fighter planes. We only have about 30 squadrons of fighter jets. We need 43, I believe. 34, I don't know what the number is. We we have a shortage. Yeah, we have a shortfall of fighter planes. And that is what we need more than strategic bombers, in my opinion. Yeah. So what would strategic bombers be used for? It, it obviously is not aimed at Pakistan. Pakistan is a narrow country, no strategic depth. Yeah. And we can use uh, fighter planes to do the job when it comes to uh, dealing with Pakistan in in case it's needed. Strategic bombers. So the Tupolev 160 that is being talked about, the white swan aircraft. uh, Let's see what it looks like, because why not? What does a Tupolev 160 look like? So that I can put that on the screen and display it um one second let me share my screen what does this aircraft look like here's what it looks like it's a nice looking aircraft yeah that's what it looks like it is a supersonic strategic bomber there it is flying over mountains and snow and stuff here it is again so this is 
an aircraft that is a very long range, 12,000 plus kilometers. So if you if the aircraft takes off, it can go 6,000 kilometers one way and come back another 6,000 kilometers back to home base. 12,000 kilometers overall range, more than that most likely, more than 12,000 kilometers. It can also, it also has the in-flight refueling capability which can extend its range significantly and it can carry an enormous payload, 40, 45 tons, 40,000, 45,000 tons of, of weaponry bombs, missiles, cruise missiles, whatever else, yeah, uh, nuclear weapons as well. So that's the kind of thing it is. That's the kind of aircraft it is. So this is the kind of, and, and it's a supersonic aircraft. I think it is it is Mach 2+, plus, which means it can travel at more than twice the speed of sound if I, if my memory serves me right. So it's a very good aircraft. Uh, and uh, the only reason india would acquire something like this would be with would be with china in mind so uh that's what i can think of now uh it does make sense to have some aircraft like these strategic aircraft supersonic mac 2 kind of aircraft with a massive payload capability and a massively lo large long range so in case there is a conflict with china we can go deep into chinese territory at supersonic speeds and this, this is an aircraft that, that, that can evade various defenses, I'm sure. And we could deliver certain payloads deep into China or into the heartland of China if required using these aircraft. So it makes sense to have this. But is it is it a crying necessity right now? Is it that urgent? Is, is the acquisition of fighter planes, more squadrons of fighter planes, not a more urgent thing, especially when we have MiG-21s, which, which we should not be flying? So that's what... that's. Because of these questions, it, it kind of makes me think that this report, these reports we are hearing may just be rumors. I am not sure it's been confirmed by the Indian Air Force. So let's wait and watch. If we are doing it, then there may be a good reason for it. But it's not been confirmed yet as far as I know. Yeah. Yeah. The other question is, will the Americans sanction India if India acquires the Tupolev 160 bombers? Oh, for sure. So the Americans have made a big exception for India, yeah, very magnanimous, magnanimously and kindly. They have decided not to impose CATSA sanctions on India for acquiring the S-400 missile defense system. Yeah, how nice of them. I think that if India goes in, ahead and acquires the, the Tupolev 160, then in that case, the Americans will definitely sanction India. So I'm not sure if India wants to go ahead and, and do that, antagonize the Americans. But if it is something that is good for India, if our defense planners, strategists think, believe, and have calculated that this is what we need for right now, then India should go in and do it and let the Americans do whatever they want to do. Yeah. And we can deal with the fallout of that because even the Americans will face certain, uh, well, they will also face certain consequences if they decide to sanction India because they need India as an ally of sorts at least in the quad, in the I2U2 dialogue thing, and as a counterweight to China. So yeah, let's see how it goes. But as far as I know, this is not yet confirmed. Okay, Man Vashishta says, what would have happened if Lavrenti Beria would have become the Soviet premier after the death of Joseph Stalin? And why were there tensions between Gregory Malenkov Lavrenti Beria and Nikita Khrushchev after the death of Stalin. 
So this person, Lavrenti Beria, was the head of the NKVD, the secret service, the secret police or whatever. Uh, he was a very powerful man in the USSR. And uh, yeah, this, this is during the time of Joseph Stalin. It is alleged that when Stalin fell ill, it is alleged that Lavrenti Beria may have kind of hastened the demise of Joseph Stalin. It is alleged by Joseph Stalin's own family. Anyhow, so uh, when did Stalin die? 60s? 63, was it? 53? Uh, I don't remember. Let me just quickly take a look at when he died. Stalin death. When did he die? Yes, he died in 1953. So when Joseph Stalin died, um, there was a power struggle in the USSR. And uh, and who came after him? So yeah, I I don't quite remember who came after him. There was there was a gap. There was this in this period of of weak leadership before Nikita Khrushchev came into power. Uh, Stalin was the general secretary of the thing. Uh, so after Stalin, it was Nikita Khrushchev. Anyhow, so. So the question is, what would have happened if Lavrenti Beria had become the Soviet premier? You see, Lavrenti Beria was a very nasty person. Joseph Stalin did not trust Lavrenti Beria. He trusted him to carry out his orders and do all the, all the dirty work for him and all that, carry out purges and executions of, 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 of uh, dissenters and whatnot. Yeah? But on one occasion... Stalin's daughter was alone in her house and Lavrenti Beria also happened to visit the house. Stalin immediately called his daughter on the phone and said, get out. Don't be alone with Lavrenti Beria. So that's the kind of guy he was. He, after Lavrenti Beria was executed, I believe in 1953, he was executed. Yeah, He was shot in Moscow for whatever reason. Yeah, Reasons don't matter. So after Beria died, eventually it, it emerged that he was a serial killer and worse. If you can imagine something worse than being a serial killer. Yeah. And in the 90s, I believe, there was this there is this apocryphal story. Yeah, I don't know if it's true or not, but I read about it a long time ago. So there was this building. There is this building in Moscow that in the 90s or whenever this happened, it served as the embassy of Tunisia. Tunisia is a North African country. So the, this building served as the embassy of Tunisia. Now a new Tunisian ambassador, ambassador comes into this building and he, is, he lives there with his wife. And his wife is not comfortable there. At night she hears screams. And when she goes out in the, into the corridor, she sees a girl running naked. And then she disappears, that sort of thing. And this continued for some time. And then there was some plumbing work that was that was going on uh, on the side of the building. For that, they had to do some digging. And when they did the digging and they opened up the, the thing and all that, they discovered multiple skeletons of women and girls that had been buried there. And the dating was done. And it, it was dated to the time when Lavrenti Beria was in occupation of that house. Yeah. So... Uh, he was a serial killer and, and much worse than that. It is now known. 
So if somebody like that had become the premier of the Soviet Union, Soviet Union, the Soviet Union would have been, I believe, much worse than it. It would have been bad for the people of the USSR and maybe other people as well. Yeah. So that's uh, about Lavrenti Beria. Why were the tensions between three people after the death of Stalin? Obviously, there's going to be a power struggle. The boss is dead. There has to be a new boss now in in place, and there will be two, three candidates who will all contend for the big big seat, for the big position, for the throne, for the crown. And in this struggle, Lavrenti Beria lost out and he lost his life. And Nikita Khrushchev became the next uh, leader of the USSR. So that's typical of a transitionary period, unless there is a clear-cut transition that's already predefined. That was not the case. There was a power struggle and Lavrenti Beria was shot. Whoa, that is a long question. Sunbay says, I'm, I'm a Manipuri Maitegal. I'm getting lots of questions from Manipur. Nice. I am really curious about the introduction of Hinduism in Manipur because I came to know recently that through my mother that we had some other religion where we had different gods. I know few of them now. I have no clue about it. I'm a proud Hindu girl. Uh, the question has been bugging me. How and when did Hinduism come into Manipur? In particular, why Krishna Bhakti? Why not Shiv Bhakti? We worship Mahadev too, but uh, Mede culture is, is a Vaishnavite culture, heavily inspired by Sri Krishna. Yeah, classical dance form, uh, Ras Leela, Chandan on the noses. I want to be a Krishna Bhakt, but I'm curious about this. When did Hinduism come? Because before that, you had Sanamahism, you had Imai Moinu, Lai Ningtao, Toibi, Pakhangba, and so on and so forth. Yeah. Okay. The question is, what, why, when did Hinduism appear in Manipur? And why Vaishnavism, why not Shaivism and so on, right? That's the question. So let's go to the map to understand this better. Let me uh, once again bring in Z-Map. Where is the map? We were in Israel the last time we were at the map. So we need to get out of there. Okay, let's zoom out. Uh, let me remove the question from the screen. Where is Manipur? Manipur is right here in the Indian Far East. Yeah. Between... Assam, Meghalaya, and Myanmar, Burma. Yeah. So now we know this for a fact that the entirety of Southeast Asia was deeply Hinduized for, for the past 2000 or so years. Yeah. The Thailand, Burma region was called Suvarna Bhumi. You had various Hindu empires and kingdoms in Cambodia, in Vietnam, in Champadesh. The Champa Kingdom, the Champa Empire, Thailand was deeply Hinduized, Indonesia was Hinduized. You had Indian culture all across China, all the way up to Japan, even in, in Mongolia, even in Siberia and so on. And Manipur is right here. And this has been going on for more than 2000 years, way more than 2000 years. So Hinduism would have always had some, some, some kind of presence in Manipur. Now, officially, um, Hinduism comes... Is, uh, into Manipur as the official so-called state religion or whatever you want to call it. Uh, in the 17th century, I believe, uh, during the reign of King Pamaiba, I think it's the 17th century, if I'm not, if I if my memory serves me right. But there are temples, Hindu temples in Manipur that predate this uh, the, the, the time of King Pamaiba. Uh, so I believe Hinduism would always have had some presence in Manipur. Manipur is not some island isolated from the rest of the world. It's very much part of this larger region. Uh, geographically, the Indian Far East is actually part of Southeast Asia, geographically. 
but culturally it's all part of the indosphere very much so so uh, i would i would say that why have the esteemed professors at the university of manipur not answered this question and not uh, brought out the facts about exactly when money uh, when hinduism came into manipur so before hinduism we had what the what the west calls sanamahism right sanamahism is about uh, the, the the god sanamahi and in the entire um, it's a polytheistic obviously uh, culture there is ancestor worship this nature worship there are various divinities like uh, sanamahi laithana pakangba and what not yeah it's a polytheistic uh, culture and in it's it's very similar in a whole lot of ways to hinduism uh, there are well, you, you could consider pakangba to be just like lord shiva in, in in some ways yeah and the worship rituals are very similar and so on and so forth so uh, i believe that manipur would have always had some presence of hinduism in the past 2000 years uh, the history of manipur is very ancient minimum 2000 years old most likely more than 3 and 1/2000 years old uh, but it officially became uh, hinduism became the official state religion of sorts around the 17th century or so now what was the other question yeah why not shaivism why was it only vaishnavism why not shaivism uh yeah that that reminds me there were these uh, saints in tamil nadu they were called the alvars so they lived in tamil nadu between the 5th and the 10th century ad somewhere around there these were vaishnavite saints they worshiped lord vishnu and somehow there is some kind of relation there is some connection between the alvars and and manipur so there was a significant influence of the alvars and the bhakti movement in manipur probably possibly when the alvars were still extant in tamil nadu or maybe just after that so that is way before king pamahiba was even born yeah so that is the old vaishnava influence in manipur now in tamil nadu there were the nayanars also these were also tamil saints these were shiva bhakts they were shaivite saints so that's also around the same time more or less as the alvars but somehow the nayanars did not influence manipur the alvars did and later on because of the proximity between manipur and the gauda desh bengal you had the influx of bengali ideas into manipur because of the close proximity geographical proximity so you had the influx of gaudiya vaishnavism ideas into manipur uh, you had this uh, chaitanya mahaprabhu is a very influential figure and then you had uh, this person called shantidas gosai who actually convinced it is alleged that he convinced king pa- king pamaiba to uh, officially make uh gaudiya vaishnavism the state religion or whatever they call it of manipur yeah so that's what it is there are various parts of india where you have vaishnavism and shaivism at the same time for instance if you go to the other end of india the extreme west currently the extreme west of india is gujarat saurashtra kachh right so in saurashtra let's say you have dwarka which is where lord krishna ruled for a period of time and there are lots of people in this region who are who worship lord krishna who are very fond of lord krishna you also have right next door to dwarka the great jyotirlinga of somnath very ancient temple it is said lord krishna himself visited somnath when he was king in dwarka very ancient so you have people who worship 
Lord Shiva as well. So that's how it is. It's always been that sort of uh, culture, India. Lots of different uh, paths available to people. You go and choose what you want. So in Manipur, you had what is called Sanam Mahizam. Everything is an ism. Yeah, It is a polytheistic uh, system with ancestor worship, spirit worship, nature worship, and so on. And that syncretized itself beautifully with Hinduism, with, with Gaudiya Vaishnavism. Similar to how Shinto, the original Japanese polytheistic belief system, Sync, uh, uh, syncretize itself beautifully with Hinduism and Buddhism. Yeah, very similar. So that's uh, what it is. And we don't know exactly when Hinduism first appeared. Would have been maybe 2000 years ago, maybe before that. But according to the great historians, it all begins with uh, Lord Pamaiva. But obviously that is not quite the case. I am sure there are temples in Manipur that predate the king uh, Pamaiba. There is uh, this uh, Hanuman temple in Imphal, which may be older. Yeah. So if you just scratch a little bit below the surface, you will find more data. And my question is, why do the great professors and historians in the history department of Manipur University, why don't they provide answers to these questions? Uh, it's uh, disappointing. Disappointing. I don't like being disappointed. Okay, Saurabh says, is it true that R1A1, that lineage, the genetic lineage, was found were, is found in higher frequencies in tribal peoples of Madhya Pradesh and Andhra Pradesh, respectively? So what is R1A1? It is an ancient genetic lineage. It's a patrilineal lineage passed on from father to son. Father to son, father to son, father to son. Patrilineal lineage. It is about 25, 26, 27, 28,000 years old. So what is a haplogroup? It's a haplogroup, right? R1A1, 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 whatever, or R1, it's a haplogroup. What is a haplogroup? A haplogroup is an extended family. It's, it's a group of people, an extended family, all of whom have a certain genetic mutation that originates in one single individual at a time in the past. So the R1A1 or R1A haplogroup is an extended family of males who have a certain genetic mutation that originated in one single man about 27, 28,000 years before today. Most likely that man, the originator of this extended family, lived in India about 27, 26 to 28,000 years before today. So it is an extended family that whose numbers are incredible. More than 1 billion men today have this particular genetic mutation that began in India all this time ago, right? And it is found in great concentrations in high frequencies in India, in the Indian subcontinent and in Eastern Europe. Uh, let's, let's try to take a look at uh, the distribution, right? R1A1 distribution. Let us see what it looks like if I can share it on the screen. Go to Google, search for that and then put on images. There we are. So as you can see, this is the distribution. The, the pink or the purple areas are the, are the places where you have high frequencies, high concentrations of individuals who carry this mutation. 
So as you can see, it is centered around the Indian subcontinent. There is a part, there is a, a region in uh, the Tarim Basin area. And then there is Eastern Europe, Poland, Germany, the Slavic parts of, of Europe, Russia, etc. So these are the places where you have men who are descended from this ancient Indian person. And it has this, this haplogroup has been linked to the spread of Indo-European languages across Eurasia. The so-called Aryan invasion. So there are these various uh, journalists yeah, who have portrayed R1A1 as the Aryan gene. It's not a gene, it's a mutation. Geniuses, please learn that. Anyway, so they call it the Aryan gene. And they said that it will be found in high frequencies in Brahmins and blah, 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 blah. blah. It, it came from Central Asia, apparently, with white Aryans who brought in this evil Hinduism and evil Sanskrit language into India and displaced the Dravidians. And then the high caste people, so-called high caste people, carry the Aryan gene. And the tribals and the Dravidians, unfortunately, don't, unfortunately don't have it. Now, what is the truth? You asked a good question. Let me search for that. Okay, let me share. Let me share this. Uh, give me a second to put it on the screen. There is this research paper that I would like to bring to your attention, to your kind attention. This is from 2009. The Indian origin of the paternal haplogroup R1A1 star substantiates the autochthous origin of Brahmins in the caste system and so on. Now let's take a look at, the, you're, you're talking about Andhra Pradesh and all that, right? So, uh, there are two tribes that it mentions here. It's in the conclusions part of the research paper. The co-presence of this haplogroup in many of the tribal populations of India, its existence in high frequency in Saharia. Uh, the Saharia tribe is from Madhya Pradesh, I believe. And the Chenchu tribe is from uh, Andhra Pradesh. Yeah. And so on. So it, it says there are high frequencies in these tribes. So in the Chenchu tribe of Andhra Pradesh, 27% almost of the people carry this mutation. They are part of this extended family. And when it comes to the Saharia tribe of Madhya Pradesh, Central India, this genetic mutation is found in approximately 26 to 27% of the males who were studied. So these are tribal groups, tribal populations. They are supposed to be the victims of the Aryan invasion, not the <laughs> Aryans themselves, right? And yet you find this. Now let's take a look at something more. So this table shows us uh, the age of this mutation in various ethnic groups or, or various groups in India and other parts of the world also, Europe, Pakistan and so on. So in India, uh, what we find is that the average age of this haplogroup is between 12,800 years and 28, almost 29,000 years. The average over here, it says is 23,652 years. When it comes to the Saharia tribe, the average age is almost 28,000 years, which means that the oldest examples of this mutation are in the Saharia tribe, in these tribal populations, not in the so-called Brahmins or Kashmiri Pandits or whatever. Uh, where is Kashmiri Pandits? It's only 24,000 years in the Kashmiri Pandits. In Indian Brahmins, it's 15,700 something years. Maharashtra Brahmins, 12,000 years. Gujarat Brahmins, blah, blah, 14,000, 14,000, 12,000, 17,000. But in the tribal groups, it's older. 
isn't that incredibly strange and and it totally flies in the face of everything these uh, historians and journalists business journalists etc are claiming this mutation the r1a mutation is supposed to have come in through the aryan invasion which came from europe and central asia so how come tribal populations have way older examples of this of this mutation you see all these lies are now crumbling like a pack of cards anyhow so what you're saying is right they have these the this uh, haplogroup is found in high frequencies in various tribal peoples in andhra pradesh madhya pradesh etc in higher frequencies than other other populations other 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 ethnic groups or whatever you want to call it okay descendant of rigvedic rigvedic clans asks how did the people of the saraswati sindhu region civilization whatever look like what was their appearance like why in cyprus anatolia central asia and iran zebu cattle figurines are found and even european cattle have zebu cattle ancestry is there any connection with out of india theory so when it comes to uh, what did the people from that period of our history look like the saraswati sindhu era uh, i don't think there anybody has done a proper professional craniofacial reconstruction let me just try and see let me see if anybody has done it um 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 la yeah la, let me show you what what they've done these uh, uh there was something done recently but it's very disappointing very very disappointing i mean take a look at this they found two skeletons and they did this sort of reconstruction of the faces you can't even tell if it's male or female it's so poor and so shoddy and so unprofessional so yeah we have lots of examples of skulls and skeletons from this era and yet nobody has bothered to do this yeah what is this typical this is something else it's not from that era from from our civilization so yeah this may be an example but i'm not sure how reliable this is so maybe this is an oh i see it's your display picture <laughs> okay okay so yeah this could be something like that see the people of of that phase of our civilization would have looked like indians of today more or less that's what i would imagine until they actually do this and do it properly we don't know but i would say they would have looked like just all other indians okay that's what i can say now the other question is quite interesting about zebu cattle so when you go to cyprus anatolia central asia iran etc you find these figurines carving statuettes of zebu cattle zebu cattle even in in europe why is that so so once again let's uh, look it up zebu cattle how did zebu cattle spread is the question isn't it where did they come from so look zebu cattle originate in india there is absolutely no question about it there is no ambiguity about the fact that the zebu cattle originate in india uh it's called boss indicus now this is a paper about the spread of zebu cattle from south asia they call it from the indian subcontinent to the eastern mediterranean region and it's a marker of indo european population dispersal so all these zebu cattle they initially originated from india and then they are now they are found in in, in africa they entered africa at least 4000 years before today 
they found all across the middle east iran is actually physically part of the indian subcontinent subcontinent it's right next door to balochistan and sindh so it's not a big surprise that you find zebu cattle uh, evidence of that over there but anatolia is for the west and europe is for the west now cattle don't go for a walk cattle are domestic animals cattle don't decide one day okay let's go let's go and migrate 5000 kilometers westward or eastward cattle don't do that cattle go wherever their masters take them the migration routes of cattle are essentially the migration routes of human beings so if you find cattle in in some place in europe it means that somebody took those cattle to europe uh so the fact that we find ancient indian cattle in egypt around 2000 bc indicates that indians took those cattle to egypt you find indian cattle in anatolia it indicates that indians indians human beings took those cattle there we find that these cattle then mated with the local cattle and produced new breeds there are a variety of indian cattle derived breeds in africa there are a variety of indian cattle derived breeds in the middle east in europe etc and when they did the genetic analysis of this which uh, like you can see in this paper this is one example of many what was found is that in these mixed breeds the patrilineal lineages were those of indian cattle and the matrilineal lineages were those of the other the cattle from the various places they are found which means that the indians who migrated to these places took male oxen bulls with them and had those bulls interbreed with the local cattle to produce new breeds so it was done deliberately and systematically now let's see what this paper concludes so you mentioned all those uh, examples of figurines and all that here we are lots of different examples uh marik marlik tepe and uh, imar cypress jiroft is is uh, right west of balochistan shahri sokta is is uh, turkmenistan i believe it's close to the indian to the indian subcontinent and so on and so forth but what are the conclusions of this paper let's find out conclusion the spread of zebu cattle from the indus valley to the east mediterranean region including syria anatolia cyprus palestine correlates well with the present geographical distribution of human y chromosome haplogroups lm11 r2 and r1az93 originating from hindustan and and of south asian human genome k5 and uh, the south indian human genome k16 so these sets of data correlate with maps showing the relative proportions of zebu admixture and so on and so forth these human populations and domestic hump cattle movements are to be connected with the dispersal of indo-european languages spoken indo-aryan and iranian and extinct kassite and mitanni aryan and anatolian from hindustan to asia minor between 7000 bc and 1000 bc this paper is explicitly saying that indo-european languages spread out of india westwards and the presence of zebu cattle in these regions is testament to that this is an explicit and very clear unambiguous statement of that fact right it's connected with the dispersal of indo-european languages from hindustan to asia minor which is the middle east and the in the anatolia region around 7000 bc and and further onwards from there there you have it 
out of india theory so like uh, this this person asks it is indeed connected to the out of india theory which is a fact it is indeed a fact it's not a theory it's a fact okay what is your opinion about russia purchasing iranian drones i am an iranian asking <laughs> so i i'd say it's it's good for russia and good for iran, iran as well so uh, the ukrainians are deploying a turkish drone bayraktar drone which is a medium altitude long endurance drone it's used for uh, you know doing either reconnaissance missions or uh, or even doing uh, missile strikes on various targets yeah now we know that there was a war between the armenians and the azerbaijanis in uh, 2020 the nagorno karabakh war in which the azerbaijanis they used israeli drones harop drones these are loitering munitions they loiter for a long time and then they go and uh, destroy the target they used these harop drones in large numbers these loitering munitions these are essentially suicide drones kamikaze drones they loiter for for hours possibly and then without warning they will go and strike the target so the drone itself will go and strike the target it will not shoot a missile at the target it it, it itself is a missile so the azerbaijan azerbaijanis used these drones in massive numbers numbers and that contributed to their victory over the uh, armenians yeah um so that is a great lesson for 21st century warfare that the mass use of loitering munitions is key to military success in a lot of scenarios now the iranians have been uh, working on drone technology for a very long time they acquired i believe um a lockheed martin drone that crashed on iranian territory i believe and they were able to retrieve it in reasonably good condition and then they reverse engineered it it was a lockheed martin uh, martin flying wing kind of drone and they they reverse engineered it and they've produced their own drone called the shahed 191 or something and they've also produced their version of the mq1 predator drone of the americans they call it the shahed something else yeah so they have these drones these work reasonably well uh and the prices are low they are reasonably affordable and maybe the russians feel that it's it's a worthwhile investment to acquire a large number of affordable and reasonably good quality drones yeah so uh that's what i've heard the americans have publicized the fact that the russians are buying these drones the russians i don't think have many made any statements but yeah in case they are buying it good for them what does it indicate uh i'm not sure if the russians produce drones but maybe they feel the need to have some drones and uh, maybe that's why they want to acquire them and test them out and see how it works and maybe use them to uh to go ahead in their ukraine campaign so yeah so overall good for russia good for iran iran yeah okay couple more questions maybe animish says what changes will we start seeing as a nation upon become, becoming an economic superpower will there be better infrastructure better medical support systems cultural upliftment less low level corruption in the nation or will the change be primarily strengthening india's geopolitical population uh, position see these changes that you are specifying mentioning better infrastructure better medical systems cultural in, uh, upliftment less corruption 
these changes are not the outcome of becoming a massive economy. These changes are the necessary conditions for becoming a, a, an economic superpower. So it is not the outcome of becoming a, an economic superpower. But on the other hand, conversely, becoming an economic superpower is the outcome of doing these things, of making better infrastructure, of 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 uh, waging war on corruption and all the other things. It's the other way around. You have to first do these things. Only then later can you become an economic superpower. That's how it is. It's the other way around. So you can never become a superpower economically without first addressing these issues of infrastructure, of corruption, of, of corrupt uh, bureaucrats, of corrupt politicians, of corrupt institutions, and various things. You have to deal with those problems first. If you address those problems and fix them, then you are very much on your way, especially in a nation like India, to becoming a major top three economy. Yeah. Samartha says, why do so many different, different virus outbreaks come up in China? For example, the recent Langya virus outbreak, which is happening right now. Are these outbreaks some sort of biological weapon tests? Because the cases after a few days are, are null. WHO2 doesn't intervene for some reason. What's your opinion on this matter? Um, I'm not sure if it's a biological weapon test or whatever. China has had a long-standing history of, of gifting the world various viruses. There was this 1918 pandemic, the Spanish flu pandemic that was first discovered by the Americans in Spain. The Americans first encountered this influenza outbreak in Spain. So they called it the Spanish flu. This actually originated in China. Yes. And the various plague epidemics that ravaged Europe in the Middle Ages, in the first millennium and the second millennium, most of these also originated in China. Yeah. And somehow they completely bypassed India. What is the reason? Anyhow, that's not, that's not the question. So China has always been an incubator of various epidemics and pandemics, whether it is bacterial or, or, or viral, right? And what are the reasons for this? Well, the Chinese have this, well, this fascinating cultural trait. The Chinese will eat everything that moves. Everything is fair game for them. They eat dogs. I mean, I'm not trying to criticize them or demean them. Demean them. This is simply a, a dispassionate observation. They eat almost every animal that they can get their hands on, whether it is dogs, whether it is cats, whether it is frogs, whether it is um, centipedes, scorpions, um, bats, whatever, right? And, 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 and if you're a consumer of these animals, then you, would have, you have to go to the market to get the animal snakes, porcupines, whatnot, yeah? So you have to go to the market to buy the animal and the meat, right? And in these markets, which are called wet markets, all these different animals of various different species, whether it's animals or reptiles or birds or whatnot, they are kept in close proximity in cages together. So you will have a cage with, let's say, bats. On top of that, there will be a cage full of snakes. On top of that, there will be a cage full of, uh, I don't know, some other animal, porcupines or, or whatever. Next to that, there will be a cage full of dogs. So all these different animals 
very different species that would never intermingle in nature. They are placed in close proximity, in close contact with each other. Now, all of these animals, they are hosts to certain kinds of pathogens, certain kinds of bacteria, certain kinds of viruses. And if you bring them together unnaturally in this close contact with each other, there can be instances when the viruses can jump from one species to another. And then you will have weird mutations happening and new viruses emerge out of that. So typically it is these wet markets that are the incubators of new kinds of viruses. And so, yeah, so that's one of the reasons why you have so many uh, viral and other outbreaks coming out of China. But one can, of course, never discount the possibility of some some, some other kind of foul play uh, being at work over here. That's always a possibility. The Chinese, we know, they they are very interested in various kinds of viruses. Whenever there's an Ebola uh, epidemic in Africa, the, the Chinese send some scientists there for doing humanitarian work. But they also bring back samples of the virus, don't they? And so on. They have these virology labs, which have dubious sponsors far away from China. It's now been revealed. So there's a whole lot going on. So you, you can never discount the possibility of something more than catches the eye, something more than meets the eye. But historically, China has been an incubator of various kinds of new pathogens because of these practices that are prevalent in China. Karthik says, why has the US not produced a single female president till today? Well, the US is the oldest democracy, but haha, no female president. Of course, you may now have any time a female president, possibly. It could happen any time. I'm just, I'm just guessing. It could happen. Uh, and the lady in question is not just female. She's also black. She's also white. She's also Indian. So the most diverse president of all time could be on the cards, possibly soon. But uh, the question obviously is about the historical precedent. Why has there never been a female president? It's because of American culture, the cultural norms, the mores, the the Anglo-Saxon culture, the puritanical roots of American society. So it's extremely, uh, how do I put it? It's extremely puritanical. The Puritans were a religious group in England. And uh, what happened is that when King Henry VIII was the king of England, he broke off from the Catholic Church because the Pope refused to allow Henry VIII to divorce his wife, Queen Catherine of Aragon, who was Spanish. Henry VIII was in love with this young lady called Anne Boleyn. He wanted to marry her by divorcing his pre-existing wife. And for that, he needed the assent of the Pope who was in Rome. And the Pope refused to do that. So Henry became really upset. He became really deeply miffed. And he broke off contacts. He broke off ties with the Catholic Church. He set up his own church in England, the Anglican Church. He he adopted to some extent the the, the teachings, the, 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 the values of Martin Luther. And that's how England became a Protestant na uh, nation. Yes. Now these, these people, the Puritans, Puritans, they were not quite happy with the extent to which 
religion had been reformed in england they wanted even more reforms they were deeply dissatisfied that you have not reformed christianity far enough we need more we need more and many of these puritans they crossed the atlantic and eventually settled in the americas in north america uh, in the massachusetts etc rhode island around that region that that area would you like to see it on the map why not because we have a map here we should see let me put it on where is the great map of the world so we're talking about the puritans who were in england from there they crossed the atlantic and they ended up in the northeast of the united the present day northeast of the united states right maine massachusetts this overall region i don't know the specifics of where it was yeah and then then they con- continued their cultural practices their puritan puritan practices of 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 being hyper rigid and religious and one of their cultural traits was that women must be subordinate to men women must obey their husbands and assume a subordinate position in society and uh, one of the most unfortunate events that happened in in north america was the salem witch trials which were instigated by puritans in which uh, a number of women were accused of being witches and of communing with the devil and many of them were burned at the stake or hanged or something terrible terrible ghastly event so it was the puritans who who instigated this who were the spark for this and and this is the foundation so to say to to a certain degree of american society anglo-saxon anglo-saxon values puritanical values right and women historically have been subordinate citizens when the us constitution was ratified women were not allowed to vote it's a, it's a long standing history and feminism emerged as a justifiable reaction to this it was needed afterwards we know what happened to feminism it got hijacked and now it's not what it was supposed to be earlier right but it emerged as a cry of help for women who were so badly oppressed in the us and now we have the woke movement which which takes things to the other extent which which places women on a higher pedestal and the men and sees men as the enemy so for the longest time the united states has been a deeply misogynistic nation women if anybody from the us is watching ask your mothers and your grandmothers what kind of lives they lived and you will know what i'm talking about it's always been that way and to cover up this dark sordid history the americans are now turning in the opposite direction they are going all woke in order it's to ensure that nobody points fingers at them and and shows them the mirror that this is what you've been doing all this time because the americans have a habit of lecturing the world as to how the rest of the world should live their lives and and that's why they are doing this so that nobody points finger at them that's why they are going all woke and all pro women and all anti men now so now men have dif- very difficult lives in the us <laughs> how the pendulum has swung so that in short in brief is why the us has never pr- produced a single female president until today kuldeep says uh one question my cousin's daughter asked 
uh, we always see in your sessions, we see maps, yes. So the 10-year-old daughter asked, if the earth is round, why is the west the west and the east is the east? It's relative, right? Yeah, see, east, west, we can give it any name we want. In uh, Sanskrit, we call it Purva and the Paschim, I believe. And you can call the west, the east, and the east, the west. You can call it whatever you want. It's just relative. But how do we determine what is east and what is west? That's the question. So unfortunately, nowadays, we don't go out into the open. We don't see the sky. We don't see the sun. So do this tomorrow morning. Ask your niece, your cousin's, do cousin's daughter, tomorrow morning or whenever you meet her, that the next morning, when the sun is rising, go outside the house and face the sun. Don't look at the sun. It's not good for the eyes, but face the sun. Feel the sunlight on your face. Then put out your right hand in one direction. Put out your left hand in the other direction. Right? So what you are facing is the east. The sun rises in the east. You're facing the sun. You're facing the east. Your left hand outstretched in this direction is the north. Your right hand is the south. And your back is facing towards the west. So that's how you orient yourself if you have the advantage of being able to see the sun in the morning, sunrise. Yeah. So yeah, apart from that, it's all relative. And there's also the concept of the, the, the fact that we have a magnetic set of poles as well, but that's a whole different story. Okay, let's take uh, one more question. Neil says, is it necessary to be a non-vegetarian to excel in strength sports? I read recently that Roman gladiators had pure vegetarian diets and their only job was to fight. What's your take on this? Uh, okay, let me give you an example. Instead of telling you a story, let me give you an example. Um, vegan strong man. What was his name? Uh, let me put that on the screen. So Germany's strongest man is, is vegan. Here we are. What is his name? His name is Patrick Babu, Babumian. He is of uh, Persian origin. He is of Iranian origin. And uh, he is the strongest man. He was the strongest man in Germany. Yeah. And he was a vegan. Vegetarian vegan? I think he was vegan. Yes. So as you can see, it is perfectly possible to, to acquire massive physical strength while uh, eating a plant-based diet. So yes, it is not necessary to eat meat in order to excel at strength sports. You can do that if you eat the right kind of vegetarian diet or vegan diet. If you prefer, I think veganism is taking it too far. Um, you can include dairy products if, if you so wish and eat a vegetarian diet. So you need a good amount of protein. And to tell the truth, vegetarians have much a much wider range of options when it comes to consuming proteins. Uh, Non-vegetarians, they can only eat two or three different kinds of meat. And that's all it is. It's, 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 they complain about it all the time. Chicken, meat, and whatever else they eat. In, in case of the vegetarians, they can eat so many different kinds of legumes, chickpeas, uh, kidney beans, various uh, other things. Yeah. So there's a whole lot of other options and it's actually tastier. So as long as you get the right amount of protein and, and other nutrients, you're good. And when it comes to Roman gladiators, uh, they actually were slaves. They were not free. So they were told what to eat. But yes, they discovered a symmetry 
uh, a, a burial place of gladiators and they did tests on, on the bones and, and on all that and they were able to determine that their diet was mainly vegetarian so yeah that was indeed the case okay we are at the end of all the questions now let me take some questions for a couple of minutes from the live chat from the live chat Cows are forcibly made pregnant so that they produce more milk. Veganism is all about human animal animal rights. You see, in ancient India, the population was not this much. During the peak, during the uh, during the time when the so-called Indus Valley civilization was as its peak, the greatest extent, when it was fully urbanized, fully developed, the most high tech uh, high tech civilization at that time anywhere in the world. At that time, the population of the Sapta Sindhu region, extended region, was not more than five or six million human beings. Yeah, today it is one point three or one point four billion humans. If everybody drinks milk, just imagine how many liters of milk you need to produce per day. And that's why, unfortunately, cows are are facing this sort of exploitation. When you had far fewer human beings, there was no exploitation. Cows were a form of currency. Cows were incredibly valuable. So when you had a very small population in this vast geographical area, there was no such exploitation and cruelty on animals. Veganism is all about animal rights, and yeah, okay, fine. If you if you 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 can live any lifestyle you wish, and you're absolutely justified in doing that. It's up to you. All right, mm, one or two more questions, maybe. Okay, let us see what we have. Eight billion people on the earth. Yes, there is. That is indeed the case. Uh, Shodit says, "Is it true that, that the U.S. may offer the F-35 aircraft to India with Indian specifications in the MMRCA multi?" something role combat aircraft uh, program. They may want to do it, but they will have all kinds of conditions. India will have to sign all kinds of agreements that will essentially uh, open up uh, India's uh, military secrets to the Americans. The the spectrum, the bandwidth and various other com- compatibilities have to be met, first of all. And secondly, these aircraft are incredibly expensive. Yeah, you can buy four or five Tejas fighters for the sake of for the for the price of just one F-35 or maybe more. Incredibly expensive. I'm not even sure if they're that good. Yeah, they have stealth capabilities and all that, but yeah, well even if they offer it, I don't think it's worthwhile for India to take it seriously and actually acquire these planes. First of all, we will have to hand over a lot of our, our um, you know, sign agreements that may not be in our national interest. So they may offer it for sure. They would be happy if India were to buy this. But I don't think it's in our national interest to acquire these aircraft. We should make our own fifth generation fighter planes, the AMCA. That's what it is. All right. What else do we have? Miguel Diaz says, I'm 19. Is it too late for me to become an MMA fighter? It depends on your physical condition. If you're really fit, you may still be able to become one. Typically, you have to start training at, at a slightly younger age, maybe 16, 17. Yeah? But I am sure even if it, even if you're 19, you may be able to, in a couple of years, reach that 
physical condition that's required of MMA fighters. It's, it's You need to be really, really physically fit and strong and flexible. And you need to learn, know how to fight and defend yourself and all that. You need to learn a whole mixed bag of martial arts techniques. Boxing, kicking, punching, kickboxing, Muay Thai, Jiu-Jitsu, and so on. It's, it's uh, very tough, but... I'm sure it's possible if you are truly dedicated and if that's something you really wish to pursue. It depends on what kind of physical condition you are in right now. Yeah. All right. What else do we have? All right. What do we do? What else do we have? Uh, from the U.S., how important is the U.S. work visa to the of the Indian economy? Not that much. I mean, India does get some remittances, some money flowing in from the U.S. People who go there on work visas or H-1B visas or whatever other visas are available, and they would typically send some money back to India. But I'm not sure if it's that that much of a big deal, you know. Uh, lots of Indians want to do that. They want to go to the U.S immigrate there on H-1B visas and eventually, hopefully, many of them hope that they will eventually acquire a green card and then citizenship. Uh, I'm not sure if it really helps the Indian economy to a significant extent. So um, these remittances from other countries, from, from, from Western nations, they do contribute a certain amount, certain percentage to the Indian economy. I don't think it's a whole lot. And I don't think the Indian economy needs to depend on that or, or should should focus on, on that and stress on that as a big component. Indian economy, the Indian economy needs to grow in, in its own way through manufacturing and such things. Yeah. So yeah, I don't think it's that significant or important in the overall big picture context of the Indian economy. Okay, that brings us to the end of today's session. Uh, yeah. So thank you very much for all your questions and we will meet again in the next episode. Until then, take care, have a good day, good night, wherever you are and have a great next week and a happy Independence Day in advance. All right. Thank you. Take care and bye.